So um, this morning, we get to continue our study in Titus. Uh, We've made it to chapter 3, so this is the last chapter that we've got. We've got just a couple more sermons left. Um, But before we get into the passage that we're going to look at this morning, I want to kind of quickly just recap for you where we've been over the last two chapters in the book. Um, So first, um, as we see from like our graphic, Titus is a book written by Paul to Titus for the sake of our faith. It's for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Um, And so Paul was writing to Titus for that reason. He was specifically writing this this to the church in Crete, but um, it's obviously still relevant to us as God's elect as well, as followers of Christ. Um, And we see, we saw early also in the very first chapter that um, their and our faith and knowledge is meant to accord with godliness. And we've talked about how that means that our faith and knowledge cannot be held apart from a life that demonstrates that. So we cannot claim to believe something and live a life that completely contradicts that claim and belief. Um, So our, our Our doctrine and practice are meant to go hand in hand. They're meant to be lived together. Um, And we we know from the text that this was a young, immature church in Crete that knew the gospel, but their lives didn't really reflect it yet. Um, And so Paul gave Titus instructions on how to, what to remind them, what to teach them about how to live. Um, He was giving them um, explanation for what gospel living looks like. Um, And as we saw in the last chapter, in chapter 2, we see Paul, he exhorts Titus by first reminding him what godly living or gospel living looks like. Um, And so we saw that in the first half of chapter 2. And then that's followed up by, in a sense, an explanation for what the fuel for that godly or gospel living is. Um, And we're going to see that same pattern continued in our passage this morning. And so we're going to be looking at Titus 3, verses 1 through 7 this morning. And so if you haven't turned there, I ask that you turn there now. Um, If you have one of the black Bibles in the pew, that's on page 998. Um, If you have one of the white ones, um, that's on page 647. And we haven't said this in a while, and I want to make it clear. If you don't have a Bible at home, we want you to have one. And so we invite you to take one of those white and blue Bibles that you see there in the pews. Those are meant for you to have. Um, God's word is too precious not to have. And so we, we invite you to take one of those if you need one for home. But again, we're going to be looking at Titus 3, verses 1 through 7. And like I said, we're going to see a continuation of the pattern that we saw in the last chapter um, as, we, as we look at these verses. So um, if you would, follow along with me as I'm about to read that. So Titus 3. Verses 1 through 7 says this. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, 
by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So like I said before, Paul is instructing Titus on how to instruct the church in these verses. Um, He's exhorting Titus to remind the Cretans of first, what does gospel living look like? We see that in verses one and two. Um, And then in a sense, the fuel for that godly living. And if you want to think of it kind of in simpler terms, I would put it this way. Paul wants Titus to remind them first what to do and then why they do it. And like I said, that's exactly what we see here in these verses. We see the what to do in verses one and two and the why we do it in verses three through seven. And and we actually get to see Paul's aim in all of this in verse eight. And I didn't read that, but I do want to read it now. This verse is part of next week's text um, that next week's preacher is going to preach on. But um, I want to read it briefly to help set the mood for our passage. Um, It helps us understand what Paul's mindset was when he was writing these words. So look with me also at verse eight. So this is Paul's aim. The saying, which is what he, our passage basically, the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So we see there, his aim is that so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So Paul's aim, like in previous parts of Titus, especially chapter two, is to make sure the saints in Crete were devoting themselves to good works. That's his focus. But he doesn't simply just command them to do something and then just kind of leave it at that. He doesn't just provide this command, do these things or just instruct these things and just leave it at that, provide no further explanation. He does provide that. He gives, he gives us a ground Um, as Caleb put it a couple of weeks ago, a reason, in other words, the motivation for living that way, the way that Paul's instructing us to live. Um, And so that that reason and motivation is their belief in God and the gospel, as we'll see later. So those are the things that I want us to look at this morning. Um, First, we're going to start with what to do, um, how Paul is calling us to live, basically, and then we're going to look at how we do it or why we're motivated to do it, what, our, what enables and strengthens us to accomplish that. Um, in other words, how are we able to do what Paul commands? Um, and I want to tell you guys, you're going to look for a proposition right now, but I'm not going to give it yet. Um, you'll actually see it further on. It'll make sense as we go what the proposition is, but I want to build to that and help you guys understand why it is um, as we go. But yeah, so think in terms of we're going to look at what is Paul commanding us and then to do, and then we're going to look at why and how we're enabled to do that. So first, um, let's look at the, the why or what we are to do. Look with me again at verses one and two in chapter three. It says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, as I read this passage, 
I honestly wonder if someone could come up with a list of traits or, in a sense, behaviors like that we see here that is more unlike what society regularly calls us to today. Um, I mean, think about it. We live in the age of self-determination and self-proclamation. Society tells us, don't submit to authority. Question it. Be suspicious of it. It doesn't tell us to be obedient. It tells us, do what feels right and good for you in the moment. And if that's in accordance with the law, great. But if not, then maybe the law needs to change. But you need to do what's good and right for you, what feels good and right. Um, it, It also tells us to say whatever we want and don't worry necessarily about offending people. And we see this most clearly in social media, of course. Um, and the whole point is that, of that is don't worry about offending people. You need to make sure your voice and opinion is heard. You have a voice and you need to make sure people hear it. That is what is this like implicit instruction within society today. It's kind of astounding to me how often and regularly I see people post on, on Facebook or something like, I just got to get this off my back or like, I don't. I don't usually say things about this, but I'm going to speak up now. But the fact is, you see people do that all the time. So, um, But anyway, it's this idea that we need to make sure our voices and opinions are always heard. And so don't be gentle and quiet. That, and by doing that, you're allowing yourself to be a doormat in a sense. Instead, we need to be assertive and self-assured, our culture tells us. Um, you can't get ahead in life unless you do that. Um, I mean, actually, I was even told recently um, at work that um, if I wanted to, in a sense, like progress further in my career, I needed to be more aggressive than than I am. And that's the notion that we that we get. Like, if you want to get ahead, if you want to further yourself, if you want to achieve all that you can achieve, that requires you to be assertive, to be bold, to make sure people know you and understand you. But it's always about putting yourself out there. You have to be known and understood by everyone. Society calls us to this deep self-absorption, if you think about it. And that's the antithesis of what we see in these verses. We see humility here. We see quietness and gentleness And I want to take it a step further. I'm convinced that one of the major reasons that anxiety is such a prevalent issue in America today is for this very thing that I'm talking about. It's because we are fixated on the feelings, on our feelings and our thoughts all of the time. We're told to be hypervigilant and sensitive to any negative feelings we have. We have to be deeply attuned to our bodies and minds. And if there's the slightest hint of distress, we need to make sure that we provide like some self-help or self-care instantly. Um, the problem with that, though, is that that actually causes more distress. And a lot of the time, we don't even realize that it does that. That introspection, that focus on ourselves, will amplify the negative feelings that we're always having. Um, Plus, it allows us to see even more clearly our flaws, our weaknesses, our faults, our insecurities, those things that are there. If we're focused just on ourselves, those things are going to come glaringly to the surface in our minds even more. 
Um, And so I think a big part of the reason why anxiety is such an issue in America today, in the name of wellness, we're called to be very self-focused, but in a lot of ways, that's actually the very thing that's hurting us the most. And like I said, that's the opposite of what this passage is describing, what this passage is calling us to. Paul is calling us to a deep humility. And if you want to sum up in one word what these two verses are calling us to, that word would be meekness. In fact, that last phrase in verse 2, if you look at it, um, where it says, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people, that word courtesy is literally translated as meekness. Um, The passage is calling us to be meek. All of these different traits and behaviors, so the call to be submissive, the call to be obedient, to be ready for good works, to speak evil to no one, all of those things are simply different demonstrations of meekness in different contexts of our lives. And so ultimately what Paul is calling us to, summed up, is to be meek, um, to demonstrate meekness in our lives. And it's not surprising that Paul would emphasize this trait Meekness is also one of the the fruit of the Spirit that Paul mentions in Galatians 5. Um, At that point, it's translated as gentleness, but the word is the same word that we see here. Again, literally translated as meekness. So meekness is one of the fruit of the Spirit. Um, But even more significantly, think about Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember the Beatitudes? The third one, which we see in Matthew 5, 5, says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is not often discussed, and it's understood, I would say, even less by people. If you, if you ask someone, what does being meek mean? What, what is meekness? What does that look like? What is it rooted in? Someone would probably have a hard time explaining that to you. Um, yet, It's supposed to be one of the defining traits of being a Christian. It's supposed to be one of those things that makes us stand out in stark contrast to the world around us. And I think that's exactly why Paul is focusing on it and like really highlighting it right now in these verses, in in verses 1 and 2 in Titus 3. So with that said, I want to make sure that we do understand what it means to be meek. Verses 1 and 2 give us some insight into that already. Like I said, it describes what it looks like in different contexts. But I want us to go deeper. So if you could, keep your finger here in Titus 3, but we're going to flip back to Psalm 37. I want us to read um, a couple verses from from that psalm. And I want us to do that because you might not know this, but when Jesus was actually quote when Jesus was giving um, that beatitude, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, he was actually quoting the Old Testament right there. He was quoting um, Psalm 37, verse 11, which you'll see when we read it. But um, I want us to look at these verses because they help us alongside Titus 3, verses 1 and 2. They give us a good understanding, and I would say a deeper understanding of what it means to be meek. So again, if you could flip to Psalm 37, I'm going to read verses 5 through 11. So follow along as I read that. It says, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. 
Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. So see, so with that read, alongside Titus 3 verses 1 and 2, I want to highlight three things. Of course, there's many more that you could that you could address, but there, I want to highlight three things that we learn about meekness from these two passages. So first, meekness is a matter of trust. Look at how this passage in um, Psalm 37 starts. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Or verse 7, it says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. And then, Contra- like, look at the parallels between verses 9 and 11 in Psalm 37. We see in verse 9, those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. And then in verse 11, we see the meek shall inherit the land. So we see there, verses 9 and 11 help us understand one another. In, in the first case, you see those who wait for the Lord, they inherit the land, and then the meek inherit the land in verse 11. So th- those who wait on the Lord are those who are meek. So it's a matter of trust. It's a matter of waiting on God. It's a matter of trusting in him to show up, to work, and to act out his wise and good plan in creation. And we've got a great example of this also in Moses. So we'll we'll come back to uh, Psalm 37, but I'm just going to read to you guys a passage from Numbers 12 really quickly. So this is, you don't have to turn there, but this is um, a scene in which Um, Moses is interacting with his brother and sister. So this is Numbers 12, verses 1 through 4. So listen um, about how meekness is brought up in this passage. It's it's pretty unique. So it says, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now, the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. Now, there's, of course, context and backstory to what's taking place here. But the thing I want you to notice is how odd that, comment about Moses's meekness comes out. That's verse three in that passage. So we see before that, we see Miriam, Aaron, and Moses um, are having this exchange. Um, It says that the Lord heard, and then all of a sudden, it mentions now the man Moses was very meek more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Why is that relevant to this interaction that's taking place here? Why, Why is this brought up? Why is that there? And it's because of this very idea that I'm talking about, this matter of trust that meekness is. It's, it's addressing this idea of waiting and trusting on God. Right before the comment about Moses' meekness, God heard the words of Miriam and Aaron. And then notice 
that right after those comments, it's not Moses who responds to them. It's God who responds. This is focusing on the fact that it was Moses' meekness that perhaps compelled him to remain silent and not speak up for himself in this moment. He waited on the Lord to do so. The Lord spoke on his behalf. Instead of waiting on... Instead of speaking, he waited on God and he knew God would respond and he did so. The meek are those who trust that God knows what to do and will do it even if we don't understand things ourselves at times. Therefore, those who are meek are able to wait on him and not feel like they need to take control of the situation that they're in to show that they're, or prove that they're right. Um, They're able to trust that, to commit that to the Lord, as we saw in Psalm 37. And that trust, that understanding that that's what meekness is, that in the heart, meekness is a trusting and waiting on God, that leads us to the second aspect of meekness that I want to point out to you guys. And that's that meekness is a quiet and gentle disposition. The meek are those who are gentle and patient. We saw this in in all of the descriptions in Titus 3, 1 and 2. Um, it explicitly says they're called to be gentle. Um, the meek are submissive and obedient. They're ready for every good work. They don't speak evil. They speak evil of no one. They're not quarreling. They're quiet and gentle and peaceful. They're very active in their waiting upon the Lord. But if you think about it, from, from the outside point of view, they appear maybe more passive. But there is an activity taking place that waiting isn't, Um, doing nothing. Waiting is an action. It is active when we do that on the Lord. They would rather say nothing than than say something destructive or hurtful. They don't want to do evil, as uh, Psalm 37 mentioned, um, that fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. They want to avoid that, so they don't worry themselves. They um, They would rather say nothing than do something destructive or sinful. They're not quick to anger or quick to worry, even when others who do evil seem to be doing well around them. Like Psalm 37 again says, don't fret yourself. This is rooted in their trust of God. They don't have to defend themselves, just like we saw in the example of Moses. They don't have to prove themselves to to others. It's a disposition of quiet confidence, if you want to think about it that way. And the most remarkable thing is that confidence isn't in yourself, the confidence that we have in our meekness isn't in the fact that we just know we are right and that's okay if other people don't understand. Our confidence is in God. Therefore, our goal doesn't need to be retaliation. There's a, the goal is that we can take any and every opportunity that we have to show love and grace to those around us. Um, as Titus 3 said, again, we are ready for every good work. We're eager to do them. They care far more about being right before God than being right before man. So think about when you were a kid and your siblings did things so that you got blamed for them. I was reflecting on this for myself um, as I was trying to dwell on this because I was thinking about like, okay, what's an example from my own life of me not demonstrating meekness? And I could think of dozens of examples from my childhood especially, like, if, you, if you've had siblings, you've certainly had instances where they would do something to make you think or make your parents think that you were, you did something wrong to them. 
Like maybe they would, they would just shout and say that you were hitting them or they would do something and then just blame it on you. But they wanted you to be the one at fault in the eyes of your parents. Um, I had that happen so often. And if you were like me, you probably did everything in your power to convince your parents that it wasn't you that did it. You are going to die on that hill that it was not you, that it was your brother or your sister. And if you couldn't convince your parents, if they still believed them that they were right, you vowed vengeance upon your siblings. Um, I did that all the time. Friends, that's not meekness. Those examples from our lives are not meekness. That's the opposite of what I'm trying to talk about. And I'm sure that you have those memories along with me. We all struggle with meekness. And that leads us to my third point that I wanted to highlight about this trait is meekness is hard. Being meek is difficult. We are all terrible at it. Being meek is so, so hard because it's painful. Because think about, think about why that is. Think about why it would be. When you are accused of wrongdoing that you aren't guilty of, if you don't defend yourself, you're absorbing the penalty for that wrongdoing that you haven't even done. You're facing that penalty, you're facing those accusations, and if you're not speaking up, you're absorbing those things, even if you don't deserve them. That hurts. And that's, and that's, if you just take one example, that's just one time. Now consider pursuing meekness over the entire course of your life. That means allowing yourself to be considered wrong or guilty of things time and time again that you haven't done. It means taking the blame for things that are not true of you over and over and over again. It means being wrongly understood, being misunderstood over and over and over again, even by people that you love. As Psalm 37 said, you will see people doing evil things and, and you will see them prosper at that. And that means, in fact, in fact, you might not be doing that at the same time, even though you might not be at fault. And meekness means you are quiet in those moments. You are trusting and waiting on God. But again, that's hard. You're absorbing that pain. As Titus 3 says, you will obey even when you believe the command that you're following is unwise. You will face the hurt and struggle of meekness over and over and over again. As I've already said, that absorbing nature of it is so hard to endure. And that's why when I look back at Titus 3, I want you guys to turn back to that. That's why when we look back at this passage, Paul gives us more than just the command, these commands to be meek. He doesn't simply say, do it, be meek. It's going to be hard, it's going to be grueling, but just do it. He doesn't leave it at that. He knows how hard it is. Because again, don't forget that this is Paul who's talking here. Think about all of the things that he faced and endured. This is a man who faced almost endless ridicule and persecution since the moment he became a Christian to his death, to when he was martyred. 
He wrote that. Like, think about what he wrote in 2 Corinthians 1. He said, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we have experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Have, has that ever been you? Have you ever been in that place? Have you ever been so afflicted and attacked by others that you were despairing of life itself? I'm guessing maybe a couple of you have. I, I would say most of us haven't. Um, and I, I don't say that to belittle the experiences you've had or just com- to compare us to Paul. I say that simply to say Paul understands the hardship that comes with pursuing meekness. He's been there. He knows the difficulty. He knows the trial. He knows the suffering and the pain that's experienced when you seek to honor the Lord and be meek, even if that means you face accusation and ridicule at the hands of others. Paul knows, and therefore he provides hope and strength for our journey towards meekness. He's providing us the same strength that he has used to endure. He isn't promising that meekness won't take a toll on you as you pursue it. He's not promising that at all but he is promising that the toll will be nothing compared to the reward that you will get in return for pursuing it. That's where I want us to turn our focus to. This is where we come to my second point, and this is where we transition to the following verses. We move on from what we are to do, but why or how we do it. Our fuel for meekness. And that fuel is the gospel, most simply put. It will be what keeps you going. It will be your strength when you're tired of of absorbing things from your boss, from your spouse, from your children, from others, even people that are well-intended. When you are tired of absorbing that and being quiet in those moments, the gospel will be your strength. It will be what enables you, instead of growing angry and defensive and retaliatory in those moments, It allows you to grow quiet and gentle and hopeful in God so that you can adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let me show you what I mean by that. So first, I want us to start, we're going to look at all the verses, but I want us to start by looking at verse 3. So verse 3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul starts his encouragement in what seems like a really odd and interesting place. This isn't very encouraging if you think about it. Um, Just look at the traits that he's listing off here. He's reminding us how much we've lacked meekness in our lives thus far. These are all the antithesis of meekness. Um, But he starts there because this is who we were. And in a lot of ways, this is still who we are. And he really wants us to understand how bad these things are. So notice just the first three traits that he lists in verse 3. He says, foolish, disobedient, led astray. Now, I want you to look back at Titus 1, verse 10. That verse says this, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. 
Do you see the parallels between those two verse, those two lists? So foolish from Titus 3, verse 3, goes with the empty talkers in chapter 1, verse 10. We see disobedient in one passage, insubordinate in the other. Those are the same thing. And then we also see those who are led astray in um, Titus 3, verse 3. And then we see deceivers in 1.10. Those who are led astray will inevitably become deceivers themselves because they think that it's true or right. And so they'll tell people what they have been led astray by. And so the point that I'm trying to get across here is that Paul is likening us in Titus 3, verse 3, to the false teachers that he was calling Titus to rebuke in Titus 1, verse 10. The point is that none of us were or are as good as we think we are. Apart from God, even our seemingly kindest acts are ultimately done for ourselves. By nature, we live solely for ourselves. Not for God, not for others, only for ourselves. We are worshipers. All of us are. Even if you don't claim to believe in God, you are a worshiper. It's just not of God. It's of yourself. Can you imagine how despicable that is to God? Just put yourself in his shoes. He is the creator of all things. Every single thing that exists, God created. And not just, he, he's not just the creator, he's the sustainer of all things as well. If he were to remove his power, but even just for a, a moment, all things would cease to exist. If God just stopped sustaining us, everyone here, everyone on this planet, everything in the universe, the universe itself would just be obliterated. It would just cease to exist. Everything requires God's continual and ever-present sustenance just to exist. The, law, the fundamental laws of physics only persist because God makes sure that they do. Nothing is self-sustaining. Everything relies on him totally for its existence. That is who God is. He is that creator. He's that sustainer. And he is that powerful that is how reliant we are on him. But we worship ourselves. We choose to worship ourselves rather than him. We who can do nothing for ourselves, we who have control over nothing, we worship us. We are small and insignificant compared to God, yet we devote our lives to our desires, not his. We esteem ourselves over him, we focus entirely on us and pay little attention to him. There is no greater demonstration of disrespect than that. We could not do something more offensive than that to him. And that is exactly what we do each and every single day, you guys. But even in light of that fact, even in light of the fact that that is who we are, that is our nature Apart from Christ, we have the following verses. I want you guys to look with me at verses four through seven now. And this transition that we see here in verse four, the, the but there at the beginning of the sentence, like whenever you see this, this is one of the most beautiful transitions in scripture that you see because it, it brings about a huge 
change and shift in the story of our lives. So look with me at verses four through seven. So first, we've got how offensive we have been to God and each other. But then verse four, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Friends, we have been vile towards God, each and every one of us. And that has affected our relationships with each other too. That vertical component of our relationship with God is the reason why our horizontal component with each other is so bad. As um, verse three says, we hate each other. We hate, we're hated by others and we hate one another. So we see that in our relationships with each other. We sinned against God and against each other, as that verse says. We all deserve the worst punishment imaginable because of our treatment of God and each other. But God didn't want that fate for us, though. In his goodness and loving kindness, as we see in verse 4, God provided salvation for us. And he doesn't base that on our merits. He couldn't do that. If it was based upon our merits, none of us would be saved. None of us are good in our hearts. We have all sinned. So rather, he based it solely on, what do we see in verse 5? We see his mercy. Our salvation is based upon his own mercy. But what does that even mean? That's answered in verse 6. We see God's mercy is demonstrated through an embodied by Jesus Christ. He is God's mercy to us. Back in verse four, when it said that the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, Paul is literally talking about the arrival of Jesus Christ on earth. When he arrived, the hope of mankind appeared. Our salvation arrived with him. We are saved by his merits, not ours. And even more poignantly, given what we've already been talking about with meekness, we are saved because of his meekness, not our own. Um, I want you guys to listen. I'm going to read a passage from Matthew 26. I'm going to read verses 57 through 68. But I want, I want to read this. This is Jesus' trial just before his crucifixion. And I want you to listen for the way that his meekness is demonstrated in these verses. So listen as I read it. This is this. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered, And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you, 
by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Do you see the meekness of Christ here in these verses? Isn't it incredible? He was on trial in front of a group of judges who could not be more biased than they were. It said right up front, they wanted to find a reason to put him death and they were going to provide whatever reason they could to do it. He was facing false testimonies and witnesses. People twisted words that he had said um, to make it sound worse than it really was. They were hitting him. They were spitting on him. They slapped him. And what did it say? He remained silent. And his only response to them was, you have said so. He was just reminding them of what they had already accused him of. He faced the most unjust situation anyone has ever faced. And he did not speak up for himself, even though it meant his death. And why? Why did he do that? We know because of Isaiah 53, um, verse 7. Um, That verse says this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Instead of acting out in anger, he gently remained silent and committed his face to his, fa- his fate to his father. That is the perfect embodiment of meekness. And he did it for us. He did it so that his ridicule and suffering could mean that we receive the love and joy of God. He did it so that he would face death, the death on the cross, and, and he faced that so that he could be raised from the dead so that those who believe could be saved. He was meek so that we could have salvation. That, and that is represented by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit that we see mentioned in Titus 3 verse 5. Um, look at that. It says, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is, these are confusing terms. Um, um, as verse 6 says, the Holy Spirit is poured out on us richly through Jesus. But, but then by the Holy Spirit, we are washed um, for regeneration and we are renewed. So what does that mean? That means, simply put, that the Holy Spirit is applying Jesus' salvation to us. And it's in its application to us, we are cleansed and made new again. And both of those things are key. Because think about if we just had one of them and not the other. Think about it if you were, if you were just cleansed, you would, you would just be clean. 
The problem with that, though, is that you have the same old nature that you had before, which means you're going to get dirty again. And when, I, when I'm talking about clean and dirty, I'm not talking about physical, like you have, you have dirt on your skin. What I'm talking about is our sin. Our sin is a stain. It's, it's a soiling of who we are. And if we are made clean, but our old nature isn't changed, we're going to become dirty again. We are going to sin again. After mere moments after being cleaned, we're going to be right back in the position that we were before. It's like your clothes. You might clean them, but they're going to get dirty again as soon as you wear them. Cleansing isn't sufficient. We need to be made new also. But then think of the reverse. Think about if we were only made new. Then you would have a new nature. But the debt that you had accrued from your old self, from your old nature, you would still be responsible for that. The guilt of your sins would still be upon you, even if you're not committing new ones. Think about it. Like Think in terms of like a credit card debt. If you change your name, you're still responsible for that credit card debt that you accrued under your old name. You're still responsible for that. Um, and the same is true between us and God. Being made new is not enough if we still bear the weight of the sin that we committed in the past. So we must be cleansed of that sin as well. We must be purified. And through Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are. We are both renewed and cleansed. We are freed from the guilt of our sins and we are changed so that we might begin to walk in godliness and righteousness as we saw at the end of chapter 2. When, when Caleb preached last week. The salvation that we have been given is meant to produce a change in our lives. Our good works and displays of godliness are evidence of the renewal and cleansing that has taken place in us. And we know that even though that is, um, it's not complete yet, at least exper- experientially for us, it will be completed finally and fully when Jesus comes back. We strive for godliness with confidence and joy also, knowing that, as verse 7 says, we are heirs of the promised eternal life. So not only are we cleansed and made new, but we are heirs. We are united with Jesus and we receive his inheritance. We strive hard for meekness, knowing that the inheritance that we receive in Christ is 100% worth the effort and the hardship that we face in this life. So with all of that said, I want to remind you the original point of these verses, verses three through seven. Why, after calling the Cretans and us to meekness, does Paul give us this account of the gospel? It is to, in a sense, remind us exactly of what Jesus himself said in the third beatitude. Um, like Like I read before, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Isn't that exactly what we see in these verses? Friends, that's the overarching point of these verses. This is where we get to my actual proposition. My proposition is just Jesus's words to us. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Paul is calling us to meekness, He's calling us to obedience and submission, to not speak evil of others, gentleness, all of these demonstrations of meekness. He's calling us to do that. But our strength and our hope in that is 
the inheritance and goodness and the mercy and the grace and all of the incredible blessings that come to us through Jesus Christ. Um, Blessed truly are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Paul, like Jesus, wants us to know that the hard, painful road toward meekness is infinitely worth it. At times, we will want to lose our cool with people. And at times, we will want to disobey and get into arguments to prove that we are right, because we might be. But it isn't worth it. You might win those small battles, but you will lose the war, in a sense. And the cost of that is your soul. On the flip side, though, the reward for humble, quiet meekness is of unbelievable worth. You get Jesus when you pursue meekness. You get the love and kindness and mercy of God. And you get to look forward to the inheritance of Christ himself. You get the world. You get every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, as Paul says in Ephesians. That hope These blessings that we're talking about fuel our humility and meekness. They give us strength and endurance to run the race and kill our sin. They help us to remind us that it is worth it. And the difficulty, it's only temporary. That doesn't mean that it's not going to be hard and painful and excruciating, but it's temporary. We are blessed if we walk with Christ in meekness, and we will inherit the earth. That knowledge is enough to help us pursue meekness for the rest of our lives. Friends, we are in part enabled to be meek by recognizing that we have done far more offensive things to God than anyone has done to us. But guess what? He has forgiven us of all of those things. So we have done far more to God and he forgives us. How much more than can we forgive those who offend us and even misunderstand and misperceive us? Or think when you want to win an argument against someone. Who are you trying to prove yourself to? You already have the love and adoration of God, the creator of the universe. What more could you want or need than that? The maker of the heavens and earth could not delight himself more in you than he already does. So what does the opinions or views of a tiny mistaken human being matter? It's all right if they don't understand. Those are just two examples of how the gospel helps us see how we can be meek. Those are just applications, in a sense, of how the gospel helps us to pursue it. How we can trust and wait on God to be our vindication and hope. He will act for you, as Psalm 37 said. If he was willing to come to earth to die for you, what wouldn't he do for you? I want to finish with a quote from a commentary I read because it it does a really good job of just summing up what meekness is. Meekness toward God is that disposition of spirit in which we accept his dealings with us as good and therefore we do not dispute or resist. The meek are those who wholly relying on God, they wholly rely on God rather than their own strength to defend against injustice. Thus, meekness toward evil people means knowing God is permitting the injuries they inflict, but he's using them to purify his elect and that he will deliver his elect in his time. 
Gentleness or meekness is the opposite of self-assertiveness and self-interest. It stems from trust in God's goodness and control over the situation. Like I said, that's an excellent definition of meekness for us to pursue and to walk by. Because that's what Paul's calling us to in Titus 3 verses 1 through 7. We are called to a disposition of spirit in which we trust in our God and his dealings in the world. Therefore, we can act gently, humbly, and obediently towards others. We can trust that he is good, and we trust that he is loving, and we trust that he is wise. And Paul points out that we can trust all of those things because of the gospel, because he has shown us that all of those things are true about himself. Never was there a more desperate situation than a person being separated from Christ. And we have all been there. And some of you might still be there if you haven't trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and repented of those sins. But also, never was there such a display of love than we have in Jesus' sacrifice for us. And that can be our hope. That is what our faith is trusting in. That grants us a hope that we could never even hope to have all on our own. And that leads us to eternal life. That is our inheritance. We get to adorn that truth with our meekness. So let's do that. Because as Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's remember that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, God, I thank you so much for um, Titus 3, 1 through 7. Lord, help us to be a congregation and a church that is meek. Let that be a defining characteristic of each of our lives individually and of our character as a church as a whole. Father, we want to demonstrate what Christ lived out perfectly. We want to be like him. We want to adorn your gospel in that way and help us to remember that gospel each and every day so that we might walk in obedience and meekness. Father, thank you for the example and for the work of Christ. We thank you that he was silent when we, when all of us would have spoken up for ourselves. But because of that, we might be saved. I pray this in his name. Amen.